Well, one of our habits or traditions as a family is that I read out loud to the kids several times a week. Uh, right now, I'm reading through a series called the Wilder King Trilogy. It is a story of fiction whose plot is very loosely based on the story of King David from the Old Testament. It's not set in the same time. It's not set in the same place. Uh, the main character, the one who is loosely based on King David himself, is a young man by the name of Aidan Arrelson. Aidan is a very capable young man, uh, so, so capable, in fact, that he comes to live in the king's, course, uh, the king's court of his country, in the king's palace, to be trained as a nobleman alongside the king's son, the prince. Well, Aidan, uh, after a few years in the court, comes to be very well liked and very well respected by the nobles of the country. Uh, so much so that the king becomes jealous of Aden. He becomes suspicious of him, a little bit like uh, King Saul becomes suspicious and jealous of King David. Well, the king eventually accuses Aden of conspiring against him and of wanting the throne for himself. And so the king, uh, well, the king makes this accusation, and though the accusation isn't true, no matter how much Aden pledges his loyalty to the king or tries to express his love for the king, the king does not believe him. And so Aden finally asks in desperation, well, is there anything I can do to prove my love? Is there anything I can do to prove my loyalty? Well, and the king gives him what he considers and what everyone in the country considers to be an impossible task, a great quest. Uh, Aiden, though, though it is impossible, uh, though everyone who has set out on it before has died, Aiden sets out eager to prove his loyalty to the king. So he immediately agree agrees to the challenge and he immediately sets out. Uh, he hopes that he will be able to prove that his loyalty to the king is genuine. Uh, well, I don't want to spoil any more of the story. I have no idea if you guys are going to read the Wilder King trilogy, but I do want to uh, draw your attention to another story, one that's a bit more familiar, and that's the story of Judas Iscariot. Uh, Judas Iscariot, a disciple of Jesus for many years, one of the 12 disciples, in fact. Uh, in those years, he followed Jesus, presumably professed a faith in Jesus, a loyalty to Jesus, one that at least caused him to give up much of his life for some period of time to follow after Jesus during his time on earth. But he didn't really have faith in Jesus. He wasn't really loyal to Jesus. Judas betrayed him. And so if we put the stories of, of Aidan Arrelson and Judas Iscariot side by side, obviously one fiction, one reality, uh, what do we see? Well, we see one person, Aidan, who sought to prove the truth of his words. He sought to prove his loyalty and his devotion to his king, and that his commitment to his king was sure. Well, on the other hand, we have Judas who betrayed his king, King Jesus, for just 30 pieces of silver. Well, go ahead and, and turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 14 through 26. James 2, 14 through 26. Because in our sermon text for today, James wrestles with similar questions to those raised by these two stories. Uh, what is true faith, or as, or as James calls it, complete faith? Is faith made up of the words we say or the things that we believe, or is it something more? Are faith and works separate things? Can they be separated from one another, or do they go together? And importantly, how are you saved? How are you justified? Well, you're going to go a long way to understanding the point that James is making in these verses if you simply ask yourself, out of Aidan Arrelson and out of Judas Iscariot, who was faithful to their king? 
who was faithful to their king. Uh, So please follow along as I read from James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works and by works faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Well, if you were listening to those verses carefully, and if you have been a student of the Bible for some time, verse 24 may have jumped out at you, which says you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. You might be saying to yourself, that doesn't sound quite right. That doesn't sound like what I've heard routinely. Isn't one of the cries of the Protestant Reformation itself that justification is by faith alone? You've been listening as Pastor Ben has been preaching through the book of Romans. You might remember the, Apostles Paul, the Apostle Paul's words from Romans 3.28. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You may, may remember Paul in Romans chapter 4 saying that Abraham, the very same Abraham that James uses as an example here, well, Paul said he was not justified works but was justified by faith. Well, you might be asking yourself, is James contradicting Paul then? Is, is Paul contradicting James? Well, those are, are good questions to ask. They show that you're taking the Bible seriously and what the Bible has to say seriously. My goal in this sermon is to answer those questions, hopefully to your satisfaction, and show you that the Bible does not contradict itself, that James and Paul are not in opposition to one another, and in the process to show you what James has to teach about faith itself. Uh, So this passage in in James chapter 2 is really at the heart of the letter of James. It's very important to understand because of the apparent differences that it has with other portions in the Bible. So that means this sermon will have a bit more theology in it. It'll be a bit more theological and have maybe a bit less application than most of our sermons. I'll be referencing a few more passages of scripture than I normally would. You're welcome to try to, to keep up as I go there. And I don't have time to say everything that could be said about this passage. I actually had to to work hard to cut things out because there was a lot I wanted to say. Uh, But I don't want to keep you here for an hour, especially with a members meeting. Uh, But my hope is by the end you come to better understand James's message and walk away with a greater confidence in the truth of God's word. So I only have two points for you to consider this afternoon. I know, I know, not three, but two. Uh, Justification is by faith alone. Point one is justification is by faith alone. And second, the nature of complete faith, or you might say the nature of true faith. So justification is by faith alone and the nature of complete faith.
So first, justification is by faith alone. Uh, so before really diving into this text in James, I want to show you, I want to show you that the clear witness of Scripture is that justification is by faith alone apart from works. Uh, justification simply means to be made right before God. It is to be declared righteous before God. That is what it means to be justified. And the Bible makes it clear that justification is by faith alone, and specifically faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross and his bodily resurrection from the grave three days later. And this is what uh, James or Jesus himself teaches a, a number of times throughout the Gospels as Jesus is, is going around and he's teaching, he's forgiving or, and healing. Uh, you might, might remember that Jesus, what he often says to those to whom he is ministering is that it is their faith that has made them well, or at times even more explicitly, it is your faith that has saved you. And we can listen to these verses that the Apostle Paul writes, first in Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. Paul, again, in, in Romans chapter 3, verses 20 through 22, for no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction. But we could go on. There are a number of other passages of Scripture that, we could, that I could read to you, that we could turn to that say the same thing. But the point I, I want you to clearly see is that justification is by faith alone, and salvation is by faith alone. And friends, there is a reason that justification has to be by faith alone, and it's because of the reality of human sin. The reason that you cannot be justified by works is because you are all lawbreakers. As, as Ben just preached last week, sin and death came to all through Adam's sin. We all have inherited Adam's sin nature. We are all sinners by nature, sinners from birth. In addition, in the, the text we just studied a couple weeks ago in James, if you look at James chapter 2, verse 10, this is what he writes. Uh, For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. In other words, justification must be by faith alone, not by works. If it were by works, no one would be justified because everyone is a lawbreaker. Everyone is sinned except for Jesus Christ. The curse of the law is over us all. As, as James even says in James 3 verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. None of our works are sufficient for our justification. And brothers and sisters, this includes Abraham and Rahab, the two people to whom James points in our text for today. Uh, Rahab was a prostitute. Abraham was a pagan before God, God called him out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. And friends, we were all ungodly before God called us and he justified us. Our godly works do not begin until the moment that by faith Christ justifies us. And even after God's call of Abraham and following the time where the scripture says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him or credited to him as righteousness, he sinned. 
He tried to fulfill the promise of God on his own by sleeping with Hagar, his wife's servant. He twice lied and failed to protect his life as they were journeying and put her at risk as they traveled through foreign lands. Friends, Abraham and Rahab were justified by faith. They were not justified by their works. Their works are a demonstration of that. And friends, this is the only way that you can be justified as well. Justification is a work of God as he gives you the righteousness of Christ who did perfectly keep the law. When you repent of your sins and you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you were declared righteous by God because Jesus is righteous. It is not your own righteousness that justifies you. Instead, it is the righteousness of Christ obtained through faith. And it is a gift of God. And that faith itself is a gift of God, as as Paul makes clear in Ephesians chapter 2 that Mark just read for us. Apart from Christ, you were dead in your sins, unable to exercise faith apart from God's grace in your life. Justification is by faith alone, and justification and faith are both gifts of your gracious God, from whom comes every good and perfect gift. Well, so that means, brothers and sisters, the question James is asking in this text is not, how is one justified, but rather, what kind of faith justifies? Not how is one justified, but what kind of faith justifies? He is acknowledging the need for faith, But James is acknowledging the need for the right type of faith, true faith, complete faith, saving faith. Uh, Look back at verse 14 of our text. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? In other words, can a faith that is not marked by works, that is not accompanied by loving your neighbor, can that save If your life has no good works, can you claim to have faith at all? Well, that's the question that James is asking, and that takes us to the second point of the sermon, which is the nature of complete faith. Uh, What is the nature of saving faith or complete faith, true faith? And that's that's the question I want to answer from today's text. What is saving faith? Uh, James begins these verses, as we just read in verse 14, by asking, can a faith that is not marked by works can that faith save? And his answer is an emphatic no. Uh, Look at verse 15. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. Look down at verse 20. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. It is a dead faith. It is a useless faith. James says it's something similar to you going and visiting one of your brothers and sisters. Maybe you go over to their home. As you go over to the home, you realize that they're wearing their only pair, their only piece of clothing that it seems to be falling apart. They, you notice that they have no food in their kitchen. It looks like their kids are on the brink of starvation. It's filthy. And you simply say to them, brother, sister, I will pray for you. I will pray that the Lord provides for you and that, uh, and that he cares for you. When you yourself actually have the means to meet their need, or when you yourself have the means to at least help meet their need, Well, James says your well wishes are useless to that person. 
they don't help the problem. I, I don't want to claim that prayer is not important and prayer has no power. Uh, yet, but practically, you're doing nothing to help meet that need. Well, James says faith without works is similarly useless. It does not solve the problems of your sins. It doesn't save. It seems as if James's audience may have been seduced by the idea of cheap grace, something that is sometimes called easy believism. Uh, now, that is the idea that how one lives is relatively unimportant to the Christian life. All that really matters is that you kind of say a prayer, maybe that you attend church sometimes, and the idea that faith and works are, are two separate things. All you need to say, do is say that I, I believed in Jesus Christ at one point. It's the teaching or belief that says if you just pray a certain prayer, you will be saved no matter what your life looks like in the future. Well, don't worry what your life looks like now. Did you pray some prayer sometime back in your past? Oh, well, you're fine. You're saved. Or if you profess faith as a child and you were baptized, don't worry about the sin in your life now. Uh, you are saved. You profess faith, you are baptized, you're good. Well, James says that's not true. He says faith and works go together. He argues against that sort of cheap grace. I mean, just look at, at verse 18. James writes from the perspectives of somebody who's going to object, someone who's objecting to what he is saying here. The opponent says, you have faith and I have works. In other words, good for you. I'm glad you're doing so much good over there. You keep doing that. That is wonderful. But don't judge me. God has gifted you with works. He has gifted you with caring for other people. He's gifted you with loving your neighbor. He's gifted you with being kind and compassionate. Well, he's gifted me with faith, though. So who are you to judge? You do good, and I'll be over here exercising faith. Well, James' objection to that argument is that works are the demonstration of faith. That's what James means when he says, I will show you my faith by my works. Works, according to James, are the demonstration of faith. Works show the genuineness of faith. Uh, to give you an example of what I mean, I'm going to use an illustration that my pastor at our previous church loved to use. He used it at least once a year, probably more than that, but it's a great, it's a great illustration, so he gets the credit. It is the story of the great Blondini. Uh, the great Blondini was a famous tightrope walker back in the 1800s, and at one point, he decided that he was going to be the first man to walk a tightrope over Niagara Falls, that great and powerful waterfall that's on the border between the United States and Canada. Uh, falling over that waterfall would mean certain death. In fact, it has killed many people who have tried to ride in barrels over the waterfall for some reason. Uh, well, so, I mean, you can imagine that word gets out that the great Blondini is going to be walking a tightrope over Niagara Falls, so a great crowd gathers to watch him. Uh, they want to see what's going to happen. And his performance does not disappoint. He doesn't just walk across the tightrope. He walks across the tightrope multiple times. And he doesn't just walk across the tightrope multiple times. There's at some point in his performance, he takes a chair out on the tightrope and he sits in the middle of the tightrope over Niagara Falls. Well, he doesn't just do that. He goes out another time and he juggles as he's on the tightrope in the middle of Niagara Falls. He goes out later and fixes himself lunch on the tightrope and eats on the tightrope over Niagara Falls. Uh, so he so, so shows himself to be the master of this tightrope. Uh, the crowd has spent the day cheering him on, convinced now that he is the great, greatest tightrope walker on earth and he can do just about anything. Well, so for his last act, the, the great Blondini gets a wheelbarrow and asks the crowd if they think that he can push the wheelbarrow across the tightrope. 
Well, of, of course, at, at this point, yes, yes, of course you can push the, t- the wheelbarrow across the tightrope. We then asked him if they think he could push the wheelbarrow across the tightrope with someone riding inside. Well, yes, of course you can do that. You're the great Blondini. Like, well, haven't you just seen what you've been doing this whole time? Well, then he asked for a volunteer to ride in the wheelbarrow as he pushes it across the tightrope. And as you can imagine, no one volunteered. They had seen the great Blondini master the tightrope, but they would not trust him with their lives. And the point of the story, as my pastor would always say, is that faith is getting in the wheelbarrow. The faith of the crowd was put to the test, and their faith in the great Blondini was found to be lacking. Uh, they, They expressed belief in the great Blondini, but not a faith that would save them from the watery death of Niagara Falls. Uh, I think most of us would argue that those who were there that day made the right decision. Uh, They were probably very wise not to get in the wheelbarrow. But James says when it comes to God, that type of shallow faith is no faith at all. The faith that doesn't produce the fruit of works is not saving faith. It is not complete faith. Faith is getting in the wheelbarrow. And in fact, in, in verse 19 of our text, James writes that even demons believe some basic things about God. So brothers and sisters, don't pride yourself on knowledge. Don't pride yourself that you believe certain things. Don't pride yourself that you come to church each week. Don't pride yourself that you happen to think Christianity is true. Don't pride yourself on believing that the great Blondini can push the wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls. Mere mental agreement with Christian doctrine is not saving faith. It is to be a hearer of the word only and not a doer of the word. Uh, Just recall the parable of the sower that Jesus told. When the seed of God's word is is scattered on different types of soil, there are those who receive the word eagerly, they receive the word with, with joy, but they have no roots and they fall away when the trials and the persecutions of life come. They don't keep the faith. There are those who hear the word, but it is choked out by the cares of the world, the, the delight of riches or sex or whatever it is, choke out the word. Their faith does not endure. There are those who hear, though, and produce fruit, the fruit of good works, endurance and trials, those who resist the temptations of this world. Uh, true faith produces fruit. It is not just empty words. Well, that's a lot about the relationship between faith and works, and and we're going to come back to that relationship in a moment. But I also don't want you to miss the importance of faith itself. I mean, I hope you already have not missed the importance of faith itself in what I've said. But I want you to see that works without faith are equally useless. James makes it clear that faith is important. He wants you to have faith. He just wants you to have a true faith, a faith that is marked by works. So look with me again at at verse 20. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. Well, Abraham's faith was active with his works. It was his works that completed his faith, but faith is essential. Faith is the foundation. So it would be a a mistake to come to this text in James, to, to read it, to read his words and ignore the importance of faith. Faith matters. 
Well, if you would, take a a moment and flip a couple pages left with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. It's just the book right there before James. Uh, So Hebrews 11. And in verse 1 of of Hebrews chapter 11, faith is defined this way. I'm, I'm going to read from the ESV version of the Bible because I think it gives a better translation of this verse. And it says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. As as one commentator on those verses said, faith is assured that what is hoped for will become reality. It, It is convinced that the unseen promises of God will be fulfilled. Faith is to take God at his word, to take God at his promises, and to live accordingly. And is this not the type of faith that Abraham and Rahab both exhibited in their life? God called Abraham out of his homeland and promised him to make him a great nation. And though Abraham, he had no physical proof of this reality, he believed in the unseen promises of God and he followed God's command. Uh, Even when he was old and he remained childless, he continued to believe and this belief was credited to him as righteousness. He believed that God was going to make him a great nation, though he had no child. And then even when some physical proof of this promise finally showed up, his son Isaac, God asked him to sacrifice Isaac on the altar as as Marikon just read for us. But what did Abraham do? He kept believing in the promises of God. And this is what is written in verse 17 of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, and yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. He considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. So even when Abraham raised the knife over his head to sacrifice Isaac, even when he was standing there at the brink of sacrificing his own son, he was still trusting in God to fulfill his promises. He believed God would provide another sacrifice, which God did, Or if that did not happen, he believed God would even raise Isaac from the dead if necessary. He believed God would fulfill his promises. And it was the same with Rahab. Rahab lived in the fortress city of Jericho, that first city that the Israelites came to as they were crossing over the Jordan River to to enter the promised land. It's a city with huge walls, intimidating walls, seemingly unconquerable walls. So Rahab dwelled in the seemingly secure city. But when the Israelite spies showed up to that city, she chose to risk her life to hide them. She had heard of the stories of the mighty works of God that he had done on behalf of the Israelites. She knew they were on their way, so she put her own life at risk to hide the spies. She chose to side with the people of God rather than side with her own people. And you can read why in Joshua chapter 2. She said that she had heard the reports of what God had done. She had heard about the amazing things that were happening uh, by God on behalf of the Israelites. And this is what she said. She said, the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. This is what she says to the spies, that your Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. She had faith that God would act for his people. She had faith that this God was the true God. And so, brothers and sisters, what I want you to see about the faith of Abraham and Rahab is that their faith, which was true faith, complete faith, it was saving faith, their faith had an object. That object was God. They had an absolute trust and confidence in the God of the universe. 
They had an absolute confidence that he was the one true God, that he was a God that was able to act, that he was a God that would keep his word and fulfill his promises, that he was all-powerful. And then they acted in in accordance with that absolute faith and trust. The works that they did were rooted in their complete faith in God. They got in the wheelbarrow. Friends, this is the faith you must have to be saved. You must have absolute confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died and was raised again. Yes, you must believe that you are in need of a Savior and that there is salvation in no other name under heaven but Jesus Christ. You must believe that he is God and that he is able to save. Your faith must have its object as Jesus Christ, nothing or no one else. But you also must be willing to get in the wheelbarrow and take up your cross and follow him. Uh, True faith is not merely mental assent. It is to follow Jesus. It is to obey his word. It is to take him at his word. And that brings us to the, the controversy of this passage in James. What does it mean that Abraham's works made his faith complete? What does it mean that Abraham and Rahab were justified by works and not by faith alone, as James writes in verse 21, as James writes in verse 24, and as James writes in verse 25. I hope by this point the the answer to that is becoming clear. I I hope you're able to to see what the answer is. It's that works are not the means by which we earn salvation. You cannot work your way to heaven. Salvation and faith are gifts of God. Justification is by faith alone. However, works serve as an evidence of true faith. They show that faith is genuine. Uh, This is what is in fact recorded in Genesis chapter 2, or 22, sorry, that that Marikon read for us a moment ago in the account of Abraham's near sacrifice of Isaac. Uh, If you recall those words that Marikon read, when the angel of the Lord calls out to Abraham, he says, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him, for, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. God tested Abraham's faith, and Abraham's faith proved to be genuine. It's not that God did not know that Abraham's faith was proved genuine, but his works proved his faith to be genuine. But make make no mistake, Abraham was justified by faith. James highlights this in verse 23 when he references back to, to Genesis chapter 15, which happened before Abraham sacrificed Isaac, that point when Abraham believed God, when he exercised faith, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In Hebrews 11, the, the hall of faith, that chapter that we were just in, where we read the definition of faith, we read about Abraham's faith as he was sacrificing Isaac. Well, those listed, they are commended for their works. Uh, they are in that because of their works. But as you read through the chapter, it says that these works were done by faith. So yes, they're in there because of their works, but they're truly in there because of their faith, their faith that was the foundation of those works. Good works are the inevitable, and they are the necessary fruit of genuine faith. As Jesus teaches in Matthew 7, 17, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. In other words, true faith produces the fruit of good works. A lack of faith produces Uh, the fruit of immorality, of sin. And on this point, Paul and James agree. Paul writes in in Romans 2.13, for the hearers of the law are not righteous before God. 
the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. That sounds quite a lot like James, does it not? If you remember back in chapter 1, you must be doers of the word, not hearers only. Remember again back in chapter 1, it's those who endure till the end, those who endure trials, those who persevere in trials, they are those who will inherit the crown of life. Yes, God will repay each one according to his works, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verse 6 but not because those works justify in themselves, not because they're a way to earn salvation, but because they will serve as the evidence that one had genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that their confidence was in him and him alone, and they were willing to get in the wheelbarrow and follow him. Those who have been saved will have good works that are active along with their faith. Uh, So then the the nature of true faith, as, as James puts it here, is twofold. It's one, it's having an absolute faith and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a confidence that everything in life will just be okay. And not that you're talented and the Lord has blessed you and so things are just going to be able to work out. Not that living the good life will bring you reward. No, it's having an absolute trust in Jesus Christ, the one who is absolutely trustworthy, no matter what happens through the trials and the temptations of life. But then second, True faith and genuine faith produces good works that are evidence of that faith. Because as as Paul writes in Ephesians 2, again, just as, as Mark read for us a little while ago, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. If we are his, we will do what he has called us to do, and we will be justified. I know... That was a a lot of theology, a lot of Bible verses to to throw out of you, a number of scriptures to read. But understanding what James means here and how it fits into the rest of scripture is important. But as I I start to bring this this message to a close, I also want to, to leave you with a few thoughts on how this applies to you and why this matters to you. Why does James' teaching matter? Well, well, one, and, and something that I've been emphasizing, I hope, I hope you've seen me been emphasizing throughout the sermon, is that uh, James's words here is a call for you to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, friends, if, if you are here today and you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I hope you see the absolute necessity of placing your faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ who died and rose again that all who would place their faith in him could have eternal life. And give up on earning your own salvation. It's not going to happen. And give up on it. It's impossible and instead rely on him who graciously gives you his righteousness if you will just repent of your sins and believe and then spend the rest of your day serving him. Get in the wheelbarrow. Well, James's, call, James's words here aren't just a call for you to place your faith in Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a call for you, brothers and sisters, to examine your own life. And James's words here are a call to you to examine the content of your own faith. Is your faith simply made up of of mental agreement with the doctrines of Christianity? Is it simply church attendance without much thought of the Lord throughout the week? Can you point to some of the ways that your life has changed since you say you became a Christian? Does your life look different? Does it look the same? Have you put off sin and put on righteousness? James's words should, should call you to ask those type of questions. It should call you to examine your own life. But James's words aren't just a call to a self-examination, but they're also wonderful words of encouragement. 
And they're encouraging because, friends, you don't have to earn your salvation. God's approval of you isn't dependent on your works, but on the work of Christ on the cross. If you're a a child of God, God's love for you does not wax and it does not wane based on how well you obeyed that day. He loves you because he loves Christ. You are justified not by your works, but by Christ's righteousness. You're simply called to place your faith in him. And and James' words are are also encouraging because the fruit of God's saving grace in your life is a wonderful assurance of salvation. And no works do not save, but Jesus says that a good tree will produce good fruit. So as you examine your life and, and you're able to see the ways that God has transformed you, you're able to see the ways that you have become more like him. If you've seen the work of God's word in your life, well, it's a wonderful assurance of your salvation, and you can, be a, you can be encouraged and give God praise for the work he has done in your life. And brothers and sisters, I would, take, I would encourage you to take time to encourage one another in those ways. Uh, encourage one another uh, about the ways you see God's grace evident in each other's lives. If you see another brother or sister who is growing in holiness, a, a brother or sister who is fighting their sin, now, they may be less mature brothers or sisters in Christ than you, but if you see the ways that their life is changing, that the way that they are fighting hard to be more like Christ, encourage them with that truth. It can be far easier sometimes to see the ways others are growing in righteousness than it can be for us to see it in ourselves. So encourage one another. It's a wonderful gift when a brother or a sister will come up and just say, ah, I've seen this in your life. I see God's grace at work in your life. Uh, take a moment to give them encouragement. Well, uh, the third way I want you to see James's words here applying, and, and I think this one is the most important, is that, Christian, God does not call you to work harder, but he calls you to increase in faith. When you are, are struggling against sin, when you're discouraged because you feel like you keep falling into the same sin over and over again, when you're faced with a significant trial in life, when you're, when you're struggling, uh, well, the answer that the Bible holds out and the answer that James holds out is not to work harder and just try in your own strength to do better. No, it's to remind yourself of who God is and who you are in Christ. It's to remember God and remember his promises. Let's just take a couple of commands of James, a couple of the commands that James has given so far in this letter that we've been studying for the last several weeks to to see what I mean. We go back to the very beginning of James, the first command that we see in in chapter 1, verse 2, it is to count it all joy when you experience various trials. How are you to count it all joy when you experience various trials? Are you just supposed to like put a smile on your face and try your best to be happy, to, to push down all the negative emotions? Are you supposed to go like binge watch some movies or TV to just kind of forget about what's going on in your life? Well, no, that's not how you count it all joy when you experience various trials. But you remind yourself that God is wise and he gives wisdom to those who ask. Chapter 1, verse 5, that God has promised the crown of life to those who endure chapter 1, verse 12, that God is holy and he's not going to tempt you to sin. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 13, remind yourself that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift as evidenced by the fact that he has saved you. Chapter 1, verses 17 through 18. That's the way you count it all joy when you experience various trials as you remind yourself of the truth of who God is and what he has promised and who you are in him. What about James's command not to show favoritism in chapter 2, verse 1. 
well, how are you supposed to do that? Are you just try to really hard to treat all people equally and just like hope you're going to do a pretty good job at it? Are you to, to search out all your biases as, as the best that you can? It's not that those things are bad, but that is, is not what James tells you to do. You remind yourself that there is no favoritism in the kingdom of heaven, but God chose you even though you were not rich or wise or powerful or influential. James 2 verse 5. Uh, You remind yourself that God has not judged you as your sins deserve, but he has shown you mercy in Christ. James chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. That is how you do not show favoritism. It's reminding yourself of who God is and what he has done for you in Christ. And take something that may be more familiar to you than even those examples. What if you were anxious? I think I'm pretty confident to say we all struggle with anxiety at times in our lives. And perhaps you know that the Bible says, do not be anxious about anything, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Was the answer to anxiety then to tell yourself to be calm? Maybe the answer to anxiety is just to pray harder. If I pray a lot more, well, it's not bad to pray more, but no, it's to remind yourself that the God who allowed those circumstances into your life and the God that you are praying to, that he cares for you, that you are his child. 1 Peter 5, 7, that he is with you and he will never leave you nor forsake you, and that he will sustain you, Psalm 55, verse 22, that he promises to provide what you need in this life, maybe not what you want, but what you need, Matthew chapter 6, that he is a good God and he is a wise God and that if you are his child, he is working for your good. Friends, the answer is to place your faith in God, and as you do, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is not about working harder. It's not that works are not important, but it is about believing more. You don't have to be an exceptional person to be a Christian. You just have to have faith in an exceptional God. Christians are called to daily repent of their sins and daily ask the Lord to renew their faith. Every day, we continue to sin. We're in continual need of God's grace. Yes, God gave us a grace the day he saved us, that we were justified once and for all on the day he saved us, and yet we are in continual need of his grace to obey him and to walk in good works. Christians, we are to remind ourselves of God's character and the truths of the gospel, that God saved us from sin out of his love, though we were not worthy of that love, though we were not worthy to be saved. Those are the truths that power obedience. Those are the truths that power good works. Now, that is the heart of the Christian faith, and it's the heart of walking in the good works to which God has called you. Faith without works is indeed dead, but faith in your good, wise, loving, faithful, gracious, merciful, sovereign, and unchanging God is what empowers those good works. Uh, So I pray that you will see him for who he is today and that you will place your faith in him. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you, and Lord, we ask as, as we're here in this place together today that you will help us behold you for who you are. Uh, Lord, you have given us everything we need. You are everything we need. Uh, Lord, at times it doesn't feel like it when the trials of life comes. Lord, at times that we can be so hard on ourselves because of our sin. Uh, Lord, our sin does deserve judgment, uh, but Lord, what grace that you have given that we are simply called to repent of our sin and place our faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, our works cannot earn ourselves a place with you. It is by faith in Jesus Christ, his work on our behalf, 
his righteousness for our sin. Oh, Father, I pray that you would help us to grasp and cling to that truth, to preach the gospel to ourselves when we are struggling with this life here on earth, knowing that this life here on earth is temporary. We are strangers and sojourners. Uh, Help us look to the city to come whose builder and maker is God. Father, we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Mm.